today on Ag News Daily. So Massachusetts agriculture is very different than Iowa agriculture. Uh, it is more direct to consumer. So a lot of our farmers have, you know, roadside stands and CSAs. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Hannah Pagel, bringing you this Ag News Daily podcast on June 21st. I am joined by my co-host, Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you doing today? I'm not doing too bad, Hannah. How about you? I'm doing great. You know, it said the forecast said it was supposed to rain all day today, and then it pushed it back to 1 o'clock the rain was going to hit, and then it pushed it back to 4 o'clock the rain was going to hit, and now... There's no more rain in the forecast. It's sunny, and it's the summer solstice, so it's going to be the longest day of the year. Oh, I forgot about that because today is the first official day of summer, so happy summer. Yeah, to be honest, it kind of seems a little crazy that it's like in the very end of June, it's the first day of summer, but I guess we'll go with it. Happy first day of summer. (laughs) Yeah, happy first day of summer, and Mike's not going to be joining us today because he's at the Iowa Land Conference. And I can't remember. I think it was in maybe Brooklyn, Iowa this year. So it'll just be you and I kicking off the news for today. Hannah, there's a lot going on. What do you have in the world of news? So the first piece I have for you, Delaney, is do you want to talk about the farm bill a little bit? Yeah, I think we definitely should touch on the farm bill. All right. What have you been seeing? Well, I was just kind of like touching up here and there a little bit in some articles. And, you know, the farm bill was first considered by the House back in May, and it failed after 30 Republicans led by the conservative Freedom Caucus voted against the bill because they wanted to have a vote on the floor with the immigration reform bill. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that that bill is hopefully going to get something voted on today, and then that will open up the door for the farm bill. And House Agriculture Committee Chair Mike Conway, a Republican from Texas, said He doesn't expect any yeses from the Democrats, but he is hopeful that now that this immigration bill is getting voted on, that his party will follow through and will give him the votes that he needs. So hopefully we can see something move along with the farm bill today. Yeah, and I think part of the reason he was really trying to push it through today or get it through a vote today is because a lot of folks are going to be taking recess here maybe tomorrow for the 4th of July um, so yeah, they were trying to get it through today, trying to get the votes they needed today, but I think they first need to get that, uh, that immigration bill that was presented by Representative Goodlett to the floor and voted on first. That's right. That's right. And do you, do you have any insight on the immigration bill at all? I know we haven't really touched on it much, but it's been in the news a lot. Yeah. You know what, Hannah, it has been on in the news a lot. We talked about it a little bit mm, a couple of weeks ago. The bill is is aiming to create a new H-2C guest worker visa program. So it's a little bit different from the H-2A visas. I believe the H-2C um, changes the length of time that they're allowed to be in the country. Uh, so we'll see if that makes it through today. But, yeah, hoping to get a, hoping to get a vote on it today. And, of course, if we do, then we'll see potentially a vote for the farm bill. Um, but I know that, I don't know, they're working hard, I, I hope, to get it through. Perfect, perfect. Well, Delaney, what other news is jumping out for you today? Yeah, Hannah, there's a, quite a bit of news jumping out at me today. Um, we reported the other day that EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt had made an announcement saying he wasn't going to make refiners 
reallocate uh, their their RINs, and he wasn't going to make those larger refineries pick up some of the slack that the um, smaller refiners were being given from the hardship waivers. And he announced, or the EPA announced, that they are proposing now to reallocate those biofuel blending obligations waived and would pass those on to some of the larger refiners. And they're expecting to make an announcement either tomorrow or early next week. And besides that, they're also planning to release um, part of the agency's proposed annual biofuel blending mandates. So I don't know. We'll see how what he what they do propose. But if they do propose that some of the larger oil refiners would take on the burden of um, more blending obligations, since those hardship waivers have been granted to some of the smaller refiners, definitely going to tick some of those people off. But that would be considered a win for uh, for the corn states. It most certainly would be considered a win for the corn states, definitely. Um, but, I mean, I know it might seem like a, a kick to the oil refineries, but, I mean, at the same time, the grand scheme of things, if we're looking at going green with this world and, you know, trying to make this world a better place, ethanol is the way to go, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, And speaking of ethanol, I had one other piece of ethanol news as we look internationally here. Um, Brazil's Senate has voted to approve legislation that would authorize ethanol producers in the country of Brazil to sell directly to fuel stations. So that bill is still needs to be voted on in the House of Representatives because they're also a bipartisan uh, two chambers there. Um, but could see some potential competition coming out of Brazil if that does uh, that does make it through. I did see that Delaney. And okay, so break that down for me a little bit. So. As of right now, Brazil does not allow ethanol producers to sell directly to the gas stations. Is that correct? Yes. I Yep. I think that's the assumption there. Okay. And so now with this new legislation that hopefully will get passed, it'll allow that to, that transaction to mm-hmm. happen, which of course would drive up the competitive edge with other, the other. Right. Ones. I think, it, yeah, I think it would make maybe U.S. ethanol look a little less attractive if refiners or if ethanol producers in Brazil can sell directly to gas stations. Okay. Okay. That that makes more sense now. Well, yeah, that'll be something to watch for sure. It will be. Mm-hmm. What else you got? Well, the European Union has given the final approval to impose a 25% tariff on about $3.2 billion worth of U.S. goods, which which will include corn, dry beans, cranberries, orange juice, rice, peanuts, even Harley-Davidson motorcycles and some Levi Strauss jeans and some bourbon whiskey. And the European Union Trade Commissioner says that the European Union was left with no other choice after the U.S. cited national security as the reason for implementing the tariff. So in this article by Eggweb, it said that the second stage retaliation would involve levies ranging from 10% to 50% on an extra $3.6 billion worth of American goods imported if the United States decides to retaliate. So Delaney, your thoughts here? Uh, I mean, I'm not really surprised by that. And I, I'm assuming producers probably aren't surprised either. Um, speaking of, of tariffs, the Commerce Department and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross has been taking a lot of heat for tariffs that they've been placing. A lot of producers are concerned, of course, 
Um, and apparently Senator Chuck Grassley's office did a study or, or had some estimates done. And he made a statement the other day that soybean farmers have already lost about $61.25 per acre because of what's been going on in the tariffs with China and the European Union and potentially Mexico and Canada because soybean prices have basically collapsed since, you know, even like beginning of the year, we were closer to $10 and today we're sitting in the mid eight mid eight dollar range here, so I don't know. I'm I'm not surprised by this, but it's it's scary to think, you know, how much lower could we go if we continue to see these countries um, retaliating back against us? It is scary to see that definitely. And I mean, we spoke with Dr. Chad Hart yesterday, and yeah. he was able to give us some great insight on tariffs and you know the markets, but yeah, just the soybean market. I mean, I don't even remember even when I was little when the soybean market was this low. So, yeah, I don't know, Hannah. It's some um, tough stuff. So producers probably should be uh, looking to hedge and protect themselves right now. I, I would say that's a good strategy to be taking. But speaking of strategy, Hannah, did you have any other news or should we hop into today's commodity markets? Delaney, why don't you take us through the commodity markets today? All right. Well, as I mentioned Times are tough right now and, and producers are feeling that heat. You want to work with some folks that can help you protect yourselves during these turbulent times. Give our friends at the Zaner Group a call today. You can reach them at 312-277-0050 and find out how their strategies can help protect you. As we look across the board today, we've, we're seeing some mixed signs in the grain markets. The July corn contract is up two and a, two and three quarters cents to close at three fifty seven, even while the December contract closed up two and a half cents to end at three seventy eight and a quarter. In the soybean pits, this is where we're seeing a lot of weakness today. The July soybean contract down nine cents today to close at eight eighty and a half, while the November contract also down nine cents, closing right above that nine dollar mark at nine oh one and a half. In the Chicago wheat pit, the July contract gained seven cents today to close at four ninety five and a quarter, while the December contract closed up six cents to close at five twenty three even. Over in the livestock pits, the June live cattle contract closed up thirty seven and a half cents at one hundred eight sixty five, while the August contract lost fifty two and a half cents to close at one hundred six twelve and a half. In the feeder cattle pit, the August contract closed down 95 cents to end at 148.47 and a half, while the September contract lost 70 cents today to close at 149.25. As we look over in the lean hog pits, the July contract here gained 45 cents at the end of the day to close at 80.47 and a half, while the August contract lost, or excuse me, while the August contract gained 57 and a half cents to close at 75. 72 and a half. And of course, we have to round out the day today with dairy. As we look at the front month contract here, we lost six cents to close at 15.26, while the July contract closed down 14 cents to close at 14.86. Now, before we get to our interview today with Caitlin Parsons from the Massachusetts Farm Bureau, let's hear a quick word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. Joining us this week is Phil Long, the agronomy specialist up at Latham High Tech Seeds. And Phil, we've heard from growers that Japanese beetles are starting to make their appearance known. 
Boy, what should they be thinking of this time of year? Yeah, Mike, I mean, the, the Japanese beetles seem like they're coming out about the same time as the June beetles this year. I mean, it's just, uh, they're a little ahead of schedule. I know reports all across the state, especially here in the northern part. Uh, if you look at the calendar and kind of what we've seen the past 30 years, we're about two to 300 uh, growing degree units above average, which <laughs> makes sense with all the hot temperatures we've had. So it kind of pushed those Japanese beetles out of the ground a little faster than normal and um, you know, you, gotta, you just got to remember the important parts. Usually their, their, their defoliation is not as big of a deal. It's usually the silk clipping and corn, which we're not there yet. But we've got a lot of small beans, especially in the northern part of the state. And I've seen a lot of setback by herbicides or other things. So they're, they're just not as good a health as, as normal. So uh, just pay attention to those types of fields because Japanese beetles can really uh, go to town pretty quick on, on small plants, you know, and your threshold is usually around 30% defoliation, uh, especially before bloom and after bloom it's more like 20, 20% defoliation when, when you should spray. So uh, just keep those things in mind as, as you're looking at those small beans that are trying to ca- play catch up. Perfect. And folks, if you want to work with a company as quality as Latham High Tech Seeds, you can give them a shout at 1-877-GO-LATHAM or visit their website at LathamSeeds.com. Well, today we're going to be talking to Caitlin Parsons from Massachusetts, and she works for the Massachusetts Farm Bureau there. She's the Director of Marketing and Communications. Caitlin, so much, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting. So let's talk about Massachusetts agriculture, because we're all located in Iowa. We're used to the corn, soybeans, cattle, row crops, that kind of a thing. What does Massachusetts agriculture look like? Um, so Massachusetts agriculture is very different than Iowa agriculture. Uh, it is more direct to consumer. So a lot of our farmers have, you know, roadside stands and CSAs, community supported agriculture, um, and they're really trying to get in touch with their consumer and sell direct to them. So it's it's a lot more fruit and vegetable farming. However, there is still livestock farms, and actually some of them have gotten into um, doing meat CSAs and things like that. So it's it's very interesting that even our livestock farmers are moving towards more of a direct-to-consumer sale option. And, Caitlin, I've got kind of a stupid question for you, but in Massachusetts, do you guys grow cranberries? Yeah, we, we do. Um, we're actually <laughs> number two be, behind Wisconsin, um, but it it is a very – cranberries is, you know, one of our vintage crops, basically. Um, you know, ocean spray is definitely present in our in our agricultural community. I did forget about mentioning cranberries earlier. Awesome. Well, um, I was just – I wanted to get that on the record because Delaney, Hannah, I think we need to make a trip out there. I want to see cranberries <laughs> get harvested. I want to wear the hip waders and walk through the – what do you call them, bogs? Yeah, bogs. Um, and that's actually interesting because one of our farmers – does an experience where he actually has people come in um, and harvest cranberries. It's agritourism, and he, you know, people pay for that experience to come harvest them. And he actually told me about, you know, one time this person came from New York City to do it, you know, got a cab to come up here and all that, and he actually just closed the season had just ended. Um, oh. but, uh, but, you know, he was able to get them back the next year. And, I mean, he's told me it sells out, you know, like a month after he opens the ticket sales for it. So it's, you know, harvesting cranberries is definitely an agritourism type event for some of these farmers. They definitely are able to tap into that. 
Absolutely. That's, I mean, yeah. I really want to do it. That's that's on my my bucket list for sure. <laughs> you should definitely come. <laughs> So, Caitlin, your role with the Farm Bureau, I mean, you're doing marketing and, and um, communication stuff, but what does the Massachusetts Farm Bureau, what are some of their issues that you guys focus on for producers in Massachusetts? So we have a variety of issues, and a lot of them are to make sure that our farmers aren't overregulated and also to remind the legislature that there are farmers in the state um, and that, you know, sometimes a bill that they think would work um, actually would have some long-term impacts on farmers. For example, right now we're really lobbying, lobbying for an estate tax bill, um, which would give farmers a break when they, if they pass away um, and their estate is inherited by the next generation and they want to farm, um, it would give the next generation a break on the taxes that are generally imposed on that land when it's transferred between Generations. I mean, there are other strategies out there legally that people use um, to make sure that they aren't hit with a hefty tax. However, sometimes things happen and they're not planned. And so, you know, we're trying to make sure that our farmers are able to stay in business. Um, so that's been one of the big things we've been pushing for this year. Um, other things we've been talking about are the Agricultural Preservation Restriction Program. Um, where our farmers actually sell their development rights to the state. Um, and we're just basically making sure that they're able to use their farmland in a way that is profitable for them while still maintaining the open space. Um, so those are two of the big issues that we're working on, um, but there's always other things going on too, especially we're coming to the end of a legislative session July 31st. So our lobbyist is very busy. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned they can sell their development rights to the state. How does that work? I guess I don't think we have anything like that here in Iowa, or at least not that I'm familiar with. Is this like an easement program that the growers can sign up for? Yeah. Um, it's been around in Massachusetts since the 80s, I believe. Um, it may be longer than that. Actually, that's it celebrated 40 years this past year, I believe. Um, and basically, they sell, they get money back from the state, um, and basically a, um, what do you want to call it? It's sort of an easement. It's in the land title, something is, a paragraph is placed, or multiple paragraphs, depending how long the lawyer speak is. Um, basically saying that this land can't be developed into condos or housings or developments or things like that. Because as you can imagine, Massachusetts is quite developed compared to Iowa. So they would mm -hmm, love to sure. protect any open space that they can. And Caitlin, jumping in here, I was just curious, since Massachusetts is a, a slightly smaller state than the state of Iowa, can you give an estimate as to, like, how big uh, farms are in the state of Massachusetts, since you said there isn't that much space? Yeah, so we have, according to the 2012 census, which they are working on a new one, so hopefully this number will get updated soon, um, but there's 7,755 farms across Massachusetts, uh, which 92% are considered family-owned. Wow. Um, and 
just to give you an idea, too, of like space, 95% of Massachusetts farms fit the category of small farms according to the USDA definition of sales below 250000 hmm. So, no. So, I was wondering, Caitlin, when you guys are working with growers, one of the big things we hear from, from Farm Bureau and Farmers Union out in the Midwest is how important it is that growers work with consumers because they're disconnected from ag. In Massachusetts, where a lot of the consumers are buying direct from farmers, is that still a push? Do you still have to get out there and, and introduce what ag is to uh, urban dwellers? Yes and no. So, I mean, there's definitely a population that's interested in knowing where their food's from, and they go out and find it, talk to the farmers. I mean, I know some of our farmers have talked about they'll just start having one-on-one conversations about integrated pest management and how that influences them, um, you know, the difference between pasteurized and raw milk. And, you know, they're able to talk one-on-one. However, there's still 7 million consumers in Massachusetts, which, you know, that's a larger scope than just the 7,755 farms that we have. So there still is an educational component where, you have to go out and talk to people. Um, in fact, you know, we had an event, Livestock on the Common, where we actually took our livestock to the Boston Common to introduce them to both the public and also to legislators um, and handed legislators ice cream and try and, to, you know, bring them out to really talk to our farmers. But at the same time, there was a group from PETA who was protesting mm-hmm. us being there. Um, so we definitely run into that where it's, there's an educational component. Um, you know, people would talk to the PETA people then come to talk to us. And, it, you know, it does create a conversation. And those one-on-one conversations are key. But at the same time, there's still the larger picture, 7 million consumers. How do we reach all of them when we're such a small sector within this big state? Right, for sure. And talking a little bit more about that in depth, this might sound bad, but I think a lot of people from the Midwest assume people on the coast especially the East Coast, are the folks that are the ones pushing the, you know, non-GMO organic movements. In Massachusetts specifically, do you find that consumers are wanting those products and and do farmers in Massachusetts adhere to those consumer preferences and demands? So that's also interesting. I mean, I feel like a lot of our consumers are becoming more aware of marketing schemes, I would say, and I do realize USDA certified organic isn't a marketing scheme, um, but, you know, labeling like all natural and things like that, like they're definitely becoming more astute in what those different labels mean. And so I I wouldn't necessarily say that all of our farmers are chasing after what they want. Um, however, if there's a strong enough demand, I know a few of them will go that way. And basically, especially at Massachusetts Farm Bureau, our feeling is as long as there's a niche market for that product, it'll work. However, forcing that viewpoint on every single farmer doesn't really work um, just because of demand. You know, there's not enough. Um, However, we also saw um, in a couple years ago when we had a ballot question on the ways that animals were raised, um, so basically, in in a few years, we're going to have to phase out um, sow gestation crates, and um, there's housing for birds 
um, and veal crates. Um, so basically, it was only going to impact 2,000 birds in the state. Um, it did pass by, it was almost 80% of the state voted for it. Um, the biggest caveat in this whole thing was that um, meat and products brought in from across state line has to also adhere to that. Uh, I oh. believe it's being brought up in, um, you know, higher court systems um, to discuss the legality of it. However, um, you know, it, clearly the consumers who voted felt that that was the way to go. Right. Um, so it it's interesting to see if the you know if the courts will uphold this or not, um, and it could have longer reaching effects. Yeah, and I know we felt uh, a similar thing when California mandated cage-free eggs. So I'm sure it's it's all kind of tied up in that when you look at the legal aspect of it. Now, Caitlin, I think Massachusetts, and I love boating. I'm a sailor. I love to be out on the ocean. And, of course, <laughs> you guys are right there on the coast. I'm very jealous. Does fishing count as farming in Massachusetts? Like, are your fishermen members of the Farm Bureau? Is that a thing? Yeah, we actually do um, include fishermen in our membership base. We say aquaculture is farming, just add water. Um, So we have fishermen, we have lobstermen, we have clam diggers. Um, We kind of have that whole aspect. Um, They do have their own association, the the Massachusetts Aquaculture. Um, I believe they have the Massachusetts Lobstermen. And so, you know, sometimes people may lean more towards one or the other, but we all work in them together on any bills they want to see passed or anything like that. I forgot about lobster in Massachusetts. Yeah, that's cool. The Massachusetts lobster, man, I like that. Are there farms of lobster? Like in, I think of, you know, Mississippi, we've had catfish producers Mm -hmm. on the farm where they raise the catfish in in big uh, ponds on the land. Are there lobster farms or do they go out and catch them in the ocean? Sorry for being asking such stupid questions, but, but we're, we're <laughs> landlubbers here in the central U.S. You're actually asking outside of my expertise. Okay. I don't know. I I think they go out into the ocean, but I really don't know. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I, I don't know either. <laughs> I will have to ask now. <laughs> Kaylin, I have a question for you. So just looking into the future a little bit, what are some upcoming events or campaigns that Massachusetts Farm Bureau is working on to get its name out there to the public for its growers. Can you can you shed some light on that maybe a little a bit? Yeah. Um well right now our our real big push is the end of the legislative legislative session. Um so July thirty first is when our legislature ends their session and goes to summer. Um and basically you know, we're hoping to see some of the legislative priorities that we've worked for all year be passed. Um, so that's one of the big things at this point. Um, however, we have a few of the counties that are doing tractor rides in the fall. So they actually, you know, come together and show off their tractors. It's anything from brand new equipment all the way to, you know, really, really old tractors that still run, which I think is really cool. And then they drive them up. You know, they generally have a little parade and drive them around. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a good experience. The public seems to like it. In the in the later part of the fall, 
we go into our county annual meetings um, where we have a lot of resolutions, which is our policy development process where basically if somebody has a concern, they bring it forward in the form of a resolution um, and it's voted on. If it's passed, it goes to our state annual meeting, which happens in early December. And then if it's passed again, it becomes one of our policy priorities that our legislative director works on. In the spring, we have Ag Day at the State House, which we bring to get, we bring the legislators out by offering them food. Um, so we actually go and collect locally sourced food and we have one of our technical high schools prepare it for them. Um, and so everybody comes out of their offices for the free food. Um, and they get to hear about our priorities and learn a little bit about farming for the day. So it's a really awesome day. Um, we really enjoy it. And again, we'll have Livestock on the Common next June. Our, one of our young farmers brings his livestock to the Boston Common. Um, we bring ice cream. We invite the legislators out, have a nice conversation with them about our legislative priorities, um, specifically anything related to livestock answer their questions, also answer some of the public's questions. Um, so those are some of the big things we have in the year. Uh, of course, our young farmer group does farm tours year-round. Um, our next one is June 28th. For dairy month, we're going to tour a dairy farm in western Massachusetts that's been in the family for a bunch of generations. So that's really exciting to see. Um, in, in July, we'll be going to a fruit and vegetable farm in Worcester County and seeing how they integrate their fruits and vegetables plus do a lot of agritourism, pick your own type of stuff. So that's really exciting too. That's really neat, Caitlin. Well, we unfortunately are running out of time for today, but we really appreciate you hopping on the line with us today and filling us in about Massachusetts agriculture. No problem. Let me know if you have any more questions. And again, that was Caitlin Parsons with the Massachusetts Farm Bureau. And Delaney, what did you think? It's always really cool to hear about agriculture in another state. And I know just coming from the state of Iowa, we hear a lot about corn and soybeans and hog production and even egg production. Those are our top four commodities. It's really cool seeing what is going on with blueberries and even fisheries and like seafood mm -hmm. as agriculture. So what were your thoughts? Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head there, Hannah. That that was my thoughts from the conversation with Caitlin. Just it's so interesting to uh to just hear what other parts of the country are producing and consider or classify as agriculture and Caitlin of course talked a little bit about aquaculture there, but I think we should get on a um uh, Massachusetts lobster farmer. What do you think, Hannah? Honestly, I would love that. Lobster is one of my all-time favorite seafoods. So, I I would even be more like excited if we could somehow get like samples along with. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, better yet, we'll just we'll just take a trip to Massachusetts. I think that sounds perfect. I think that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> well, Delaney, if our listeners have any more questions or want to get a hold of us, where can they head to? Absolutely, we're actively on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter, always sharing stuff there, sharing interesting news articles and things as we see them. You can find us at Ag News Daily. You can also find us online if you head to agnewsdaily.com. We've got a great contact us submission form there that goes directly to our inboxes. So we appreciate any feedback, comments, questions, concerns, etc. 
And you can always reach us there. So with that, Hannah, should we let the people go? Let's let them go, Delaney.